Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacorn Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 5. Revisiting Mythical Women. Episode 1. Revisiting Shinnan. So, welcome to Series 5, where we are revisiting our first series that we ever put out on mythical women. We wanted to go back and add in some notes with what we did in that very first series. Yeah, and find out whether we still liked what we'd done or whether we still agreed with it. Exactly, yes. But also to link it in with work that we've done since, uh, which I think there is quite a lot of useful links that we can do. And add a few new articles. So there's plenty of new stuff. Here we are then, our first revisit to the very first podcast episode we ever did. Yeah. So well, emotional. <laughs> Shinnan was always a very important story for me. Yeah. And to both of us, really. And so that's why we chose it as our first topic. Yeah. Well, what I found very striking in listening to this first episode again is how many themes we touched on when talking about Shinnan that have proved to be recurrent motifs mm. Mm. right the way through all our story mm. archaeology work. Same stuff we talk about all the time. Exactly, yeah. And perhaps the most important or certainly the most frequent of these recurrent issues is the importance of poets and poetry, yeah. which is so central to the story of Shinnan. Absolutely. And I mean, we've iterated it, we've reiterated it and we've re-reiterated it. And gone on about it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're probably sick of it by now. But the importance of the poet, first of all, as essential part of early Irish society and then, of course, the role of the poetry itself. Now, some of this really comes down to a way in which the role of the so-called Druid has been misunderstood and misapprehended over and over again as some kind of a magician who changes things at whim. You know, that really what it goes back to is this poet who can, through usually his words, make things other than they initially appear to be, that the poet is the one who holds all the knowledge who rather than the sort of Game of Thrones Thane of Groan's hand of the king you just said he's the brain of the king (laughs) (laughs) or maybe the conscience of the king absolutely yes the conscience of the king the one who has that connection with the mysterious other world the source of poetry and inspiration exactly but also of authority you know that it's the poet's both knowledge of law but also the poet's connection to that other world to being able to see things differently. The rightness of things. Exactly, and the core that we go on about. That it's that poet's ability that actually kind of gives the king authority. Yeah, if, if, if the king gets it wrong, he's off, exactly, he's gone, yeah. and it's usually the poet that does it. Of course, I mean, later on, in post-Norman times, this mm. becomes the cleric, doesn't it, who stands yes. by the side of the king exactly. and acts as the conscience of the king. But in, a, in the pre-Norman world, it was the poet. It was. And the poet wasn't a religious figure. No, I don't think so. Very uh, important, this, yes, I think. I think so, yeah. And it, again, important then to understand it as a poet rather than a, a druid. You know, Mm. it's not a sort of a priestly thing, but it's very interesting how the sort of medieval Irish society knew that there was some kind of equivalence between the role of the cleric and the role of the poet. And in fact, there's all these status texts like the Breath of Nevid, which spend huge amounts of time and energy trying to create almost like a table of correspondence between Mm. the different grades of poet and the different grades of cleric. Because the poets, their work had become devalued and was no longer understood. Yes, it was no longer understood. And we particularly saw this when we looked at the story of Cormac and particularly all that preamble about how Cormac and the other nobles couldn't understand why poets had so much power and authority. And they said, shouldn't we have it? We're the ones with the swords. (laughs) Um, And so then they They, were trying to take power away from the poets. They'd forgotten it was the poets that kept them on their thrones. Exactly. And kept their swords shiny. Gave the deeds of the swords once they'd done them. Yeah. Yeah, very <laughs> Basically, much so. yeah, yeah. you know, they kept them remembered and yes. important and kept their status high. Yes, but it was um, also a change from understanding the power and the magic 
of the spoken word, which then gets replaced by the, the culture word. of the book. The exactly. The book. You know. Yeah, well, I found looking back at Shinnan that after three years, even more strongly, I feel that Shinnan is an exemplar of this connection and rightness. Yes. I mean, she seeks for the highest levels of extemporised poetic inspiration. Exactly. The imboss, which is really central to the story, that that is the thing she lacks, that's the thing she goes to get. And in fact, in going back over, I started to wonder, you know, was this in some ways a creation story for Imboss? Mm. Was it a was way that of... Was it the of Imboss? It's, yeah. But, it's, I know that's the wrong word. Yeah, but, but um... to say that, you know, it was Shinnan who went all the way to the well under the sea and brought back Imboss so that then poets could reach this, you know, highest attainment of poetry. This is how it came to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, certainly she's fit to be a, a king's poet, just oh, like Mongol. Well, I suppose that brings us to to another of our favourite themes. Yes, <laughs> which is, of course, these journeys into the other world and particularly those journeys over the sea, which we've just done a rather long series on in yeah, the yeah, Imrama. Yeah. It was a very long journey for a story type <laughs> with only four official texts. Well, it's, it's not my <laughs> fault that they couldn't get their categories sorted out. We now know better than the medieval scholars what an Imrama is. <laughs> oh, I but I certainly enjoyed the series. It was great, yeah. Three years ago, I think I said that the position of Conla's well or the well of the generous woman mm. at the bottom of the sea was weird. Actually, I wouldn't say that at all now because yes. it's exactly where you'd expect it to be, at the bottom of the sea. Yes, and we've just had a lot of dealings with what lies in the sea. But of course, Shinnan is making this journey into the other world and importantly, bringing back a gift that is so central to all the other world gifts. She's bringing back that poetic inspiration, which, as we saw, includes law and it includes core and all of that rightness mm. and authority that enables society to function. So, you know, that's a really... I was going to say core um, <laughs> feature. Core. Yeah, core, core of Otherworld Journey. <laughs> it's quite true that in the original podcast, we talked a lot about paradox, but the land and the wave is exactly that. It's yeah. paradox. Yeah. And paradox is central to all other world stories, no matter where they're set. Exactly. But not only that, but those paradoxical features that make something another world are exactly those features that make something poetry that they share a structure and they share an approach that really, you know, you can almost interchange those ideas. Yeah, so the features of the other world are the same as the features of poetry exactly. and the effect of poetry. Yeah. And then, of course, as we discovered, when you get to that, those later stories, the sort of wand-waving and spell-spouting sort of twinkly magic... Usually part of 14th century stories. Exactly. They're generally post-Norman. And we found, I think, the moment of that shift from poetry, inspiration, other world to wand waving magic. We found that moment in Cormac. In yeah, the story of Cormac, it showed exactly how it was done. We'll, why it we'll was be done. putting links to We the, will put links up. A lot of our favourite stories involve journeys to the other world. Yeah, and the bringing back of gifts. Exactly. And whether it's Cormac's cup or the imboss forosna that Shinnan retrieves, it's very much the source of authority in this world for the poet. Of course, Mongol, he's a gift himself. He is, and he is sent and fathered by Mananon in order to reunite the temporal political world with an atemporal poetic other world. And that's why he doesn't necessarily go on these quests himself, uh, with the exception of when he temporarily mislays his wife for yeah, a year. <laughs> and he'd have just been stuck wishing for a exactly. Had been of Exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's a different story. Yes. <laughs> but you know, Shinnan, she manages it all her Herself without any sort of outside agency at all, not even Manan. When I was listening to the episode again, it struck me that you could see Shinnan as a kind of Prometheus. Yeah, which is, is very interesting. Um, but unlike Prometheus, she doesn't have any gods to steal from. And therefore, she can't be punished by any gods. Yeah. And I mean, it may be a sort of an, an understanding of that Promethean connection that made her story conflated with the story of Bowen. Yeah, she deserved to be punished. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. and that idea of, of taking something that you're not meant to have. Um, and we spent 
quite a lot of time in the episode trying to break that false connection that had mm-hmm. been made between the story of Shinnan and the stories of Bowen, particularly. Mostly by O'Curry. Well, yes, by O'Curry, but he's not alone in that now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people would, on the surface of it, make those connections. And not just with Bowen, but with other stories that we discussed in the mm-hmm. episode about wells erupting and how often women had to be punished for, you know, leaving them out of control and so on. But what we didn't do in the episode was to forge connections between the Shinnan story and other stories of waves. Yeah, now there are, and we've covered several stories of women and extreme waves, haven't we? We have, and particularly when we were sort of looking around stories of Mananon in the most recent Imrov series, we talked about a couple of the stories, particularly Tulaginvar and Tumkliana mm-hmm. are the biggies. And these tend to be ones where, again, there's crossing between one world and the other. And there's often an attempt to abduct or elope with an otherworld woman. And then at some point she gets left on the shore and usually falls asleep and is then taken back by a great wave. Often taken back to the other world. Exactly, taken back to the other world and never seen again. Mind you, I did come across a more modern version of that story. (laughs) It's in a very good paper called Extreme Wave Events in Ireland by uh, L. O'Brien and J.M. Dudley and F. Dias. And they, at the end of this um, technical paper, they give a few examples of stories. And one of the stories they give is from 1670, uh, collected from the Irish Times, I think, originally. In a speech given in Georgian Dublin, a reference is made of a girl who was drowned in a wave at the foot of Grafton Street sometime after 1670. Yeah. So you see, stories can go on. Oh, they do. Oh, absolutely. It's almost as so somehow, unconsciously, that's still the same wave. Yeah. So you could consider maybe Shinnan as the progenitor of all these stories. Well, that's very possible. And in just the same way that the source of the river in the story is not really a well, but it's the sea, I feel like the river Shannon itself is not like other rivers. I feel it's more of a memory of the sea. What do you mean? Well, one image that came to mind is actually Ptolemy's map of Europe, of the known world at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, his strange Ireland. Yeah, where Ireland is lopped off at the side where the Shannon is, because beyond that great river was obviously foreign lands and foreign parts. It's actually an island. It is. It's effectively an (laughs) island. Um, But also that image within the Shannon story where the wave follows her back from the sea until it reaches the brink of the river. And that's where Shannon meets her end. Which is, in fact, the new coastline, if you like. Exactly. It's a new place where people live, or that's how we were looking at it. Yes. And so that's what I mean by a memory of the sea, that in a way it's functioning as a pseudo-sea, rather than some of the other rivers. And it's a like big river. One thing, though, I'm almost feeling that we're losing the significance of the Shannon Pot, yeah. and that would make me very sorry. It's an extremely special place. Yes, and in fact, I don't think we really discussed it enough in the original episode. It's this wonderful shaped pool. Mm. Uh, it is the physical source of mm. the river itself. Clearly a votive pool. Of yeah, some probably kind. Probably an Iron Age votive pool. Yeah, it's rumoured to be bottomless, or it's thought of as a bottomless pool. Yeah, I suppose so. It's, it's true sources are mysterious. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think they haven't even been fully mapped in modern times. Sometimes they connect with the caves up in um, Florence Court. Yes. And some people say they go even further. So sometimes Northern Ireland is given as the source of the Shannon. Yes. Not cavern. Source to source. It's kind of apt. It is. Well, we should also revisit our theme of ferocious waves and inundation stories. Now, three years ago, we were quite tentative about some of this material. Yeah, well, you have to be cautious about suggesting that the echo of a story might still be remembered all the way back from Mesolithic times. Yes. But further researches that we've done into the early, if you like, geographical story of Ireland, I think they've actually strengthened our case quite a bit. Although the land bridge between Ireland and Britain sort of finally gave way to the sea around 12,000 years ago, Mm. and so that wonderful freshwater lake of the Irish Sea became then salt water. Mm. It did seem that the land bridge might have reappeared, at least briefly, on several occasions. Mm. Now, I find that particularly interesting because it might have given rise to all sorts of long remembered lost land tales. Exactly. That's another story. But what 
is even more interesting, I think, is that those sea levels that started to rise so dramatically after the last ice age were still rising up to 3,000 years ago. And that's well into Neolithic times. And it's even after a lot of our famous megalithic sites had already been built. Mm. Still, we were terribly tentative about making those connections that the Shinnan story or a story like it might have persisted for more than 3,000 years. If we were exploring Australian stories, we might have no problem making that assertion. Yeah. People make all sorts of claims, and perhaps rightly for Australian Indigenous stories. Mm. Um, I did go researching in Brisbane while, while I was there last year, because I'm there for a while every year. Mm. and. I really went through the Queensland Library and I went to uh, the anthropology department in the Queensland University and I asked as far as I could and I did find some very interesting stories, some to do with the Great Barrier Reef and stories referencing crocodiles in southern Queensland yes. and they've been gone for there for thousands of years. Mm. But I didn't really find a lot of what I was looking for. It turns out I was in the wrong department. Yes. <laughs> I was looking in the anthropology department and I really should have been looking in the geography department mm. uh, because there was a paper published in, I think it was early this year. Yes, or it was published from a conference that was held in 2014 yeah, last year. We were exploring this. It's absolutely brilliant. It is wonderful, yeah. And uh, it's all about the way Australian Indigenous stories may preserve the history of sea level changes. Yeah. It's Dr Nick Reed and Professor Patrick Nunn, mm. and they're a geographer and a climate change scientist. Yes. So no wonder I didn't go and talk to geographers. <laughs> but they offer some fascinating stories that can be geographically dated back mm. between nine and 12,000 years old. Yeah. So they're on stronger ground. Yes, there. yeah, yeah. Now, it's worth looking at the paper, or at least a description of the paper. We'll yes. put up a link to the description of the paper and the article that goes with it yeah. on the blog. But they, interestingly, they suggest Australian stories are unique in this respect, but I'm not sure they are. I would say they are flat out wrong, because oh, like most I think people... We, we still be tentative. Well, I just feel, again, most people aren't aware of the depth of the Irish tradition. Which they are. Exactly. And I mean, why would Australians on the other side of the globe think to look at a tiny island on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean? But we've found so often these connections between the sort of the types of Irish stories and the types of the Australian stories. Yeah. Do you remember our series on Din Hanukkah? Exactly. And, and mythic cartography. Yeah, I, that started because of making this link between the Dinyanicus tradition and the Australian Aboriginal tradition. That's when I actually went up to Kakadu and yeah. up to the Northern Territories. Yes, yeah, to... and actually investigating the Dreamtime stories, mm. which at the time, I remember you saying that you found it difficult to accept that they were 20,000 years old. Well, I was being introduced to stories that these these carvings are 20,000 years old. Mm. And then I'm going, but that says there that it was only painted in the 60s. Yeah. And it came to me that, hang on, if I go and buy a book of Shakespeare, yeah. I don't go, yeah, but this was only printed last week. Exactly, yeah. It's the same stories yeah. carried on and on and on. They're largely through pictures yeah. and the dreaming sites. Mm. But it's very much like our Dinyanicus. Oh, it so is. It so, so much is. And... It sort of started there with Shinnan in some ways, but it's kept yeah. on coming back again yeah, and again. Yeah, there's extraordinary parallels between the two traditions. I know, isn't ways. there? Yeah. And so three years on, I'd say we're much more confident in the possibility of the land-shaping stories of Ireland, or what we call the storylines of Ireland. Exactly. Shinnan really did set us off on our search, not just for translated texts, not mm. even original texts, but, but real solid reliable story evidence. Yeah, and again, right in that very first episode, our main source was the Metrical Dinhenicus, and that's been a firm friend to me, certainly, and I think to all of us, and such a rich source for mm -hmm. those very fundamental stories which are about the shaping of the land and the connection of the stories into the landscape. Sort of just-so stories. Yeah. You can't get this geographical dating evidence, mm. but it is story dating evidence. It is, yeah. And I think we're much firmer on that now than we were when we started. If you, like us, mm. are revisiting the story of Shinnan, we hope this review offers you some new perspectives on our old favourites. Yes, yes. And if this is your first time encountering Shinnan, then we very much hope you enjoy this episode that we're still happy to stand by. And remember, you can always come back and listen to these notes again afterwards and help you to get the story in context. So enjoy the episode and we'll talk to you again when we come back to revisit Macha. 
the story of Shillen. In the days of dreaming when the ever-living ones still walk freely among the misty mountains and green valleys of Ireland, when the soft light of enchantment shone from every hill of the Shi, there was a well. It was a deep and hidden pool, fringed and caressed by nine strong hazel trees. Pale leaves in spring would gently stroke the bubbling waters and as the year turned, red nuts would drop softly into the deep reflecting mirror of the well. Within its depths, the wise ones, the old ones, the salmon, consumed each kernel of wisdom, each nut of inspiration, for had they not the whole world in a nutshell? It was a deep place of wonder, of enchantment, of understanding, but above all a secret place. A deep and secret place, but not unknown. It was known, after all, to the wise men, the magicians, who would drink the water from the pool, skimming the surface of its secrets, wielding its knowledge and absorbing its enchantments. And so they became great, awesome, knowledgeable, powerful, enchanted, inspired, but not inspiring. Then came Shinnan to that place. Granddaughter to the sea, she came in her tide time. She came free and fresh, drawn like a seagull from the open sea to that deep wide well, deeper, wider and stronger than the sea itself. She came not as a magician or wise man. She came not to seek power. She came as the sea comes in curiosity without hindrance. She was unstoppable. Her feet were like white seashells and her hair was woven with the wind. She was ungovernable. Her azure green robe undulated like wind-washed waves as she walked. She was unknowable. The salmon stirred in their bonds of knowledge and began to turn in great spirals, rising to meet their freedom. And as she reached the well, the water rose to greet her. Wild waves of beauty reached out for her, overstepping the bounds of knowledge. New patterns of laughter, white and blue, green and purple, azure and turquoise, the deep longings of amethyst, cried out to her as the waters danced around her. She danced the wild dance of inspiration, unfettered by knowledge, the joyful steps of understanding, freed from its clever bonds. The song of the waters of intuition swept her along, and she allowed herself to become one with it, in its frenzy and ecstasy. The magicians watched in horror as their secrets were poured forth in a babble of wise words, the gems of their secret wisdom shining like pearls on the bed of the crystal river, for the well no longer contained and static had indeed become a river, tumbling over rocks, dunching in sheer exuberance for its own pleasure until it reached the plains. She flowed gladly and graciously down, down through the land, becoming broad and queenly, a goddess among rivers, bestowing favours, carrying the salmon of knowledge on her way once more to reach the sparkling sea. Now that version of the story of Shinnan, which is a great favourite story of mine, I've told the generally known version there. It's cited by, among others, Eugene O'Curry, and is often compared to the story of Bowen found in the Book of Leinster. But apart from the Metrical Dinshanicus, I can't find any other versions of the stories or any other sources besides Okari. Since he seems to be the only person who's telling the earliest form of the story I can find, who exactly was Eugene Okari? Well, Eugene O'Curry was, he was a real pioneer in terms of looking at Irish manuscripts and uh, what they meant. He was born in the late 1700s mm-hmm. and he was involved in the Royal Irish Academy during the first half of the 19th century. So it's quite early isn't it? It is in terms of you know the modern field of uh, study of old Irish or of early Irish uh, history. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the beginning of the sort of 19th century revival rather like there was in the medieval times. Well the 19th century for Ireland was very much our renaissance in, yeah, in yeah. every sense of the word and in fact O'Curry's uh, lectures uh, which he never published during his lifetime, he died I think in the 1840s and so his lectures were edited and published by William K. Sullivan. And uh, now he's quite an important person to you isn't he? He is rather, he's my great great-great-grandfather, as it happens. But he was also very much the model of the Irish Renaissance man 
in mm-hmm. the in the nineteenth century. He was first and foremost a scientist, and he was the second head of the university in Cork, Queen's mm-hmm. University in Cork. And he was secretary of the, the Royal Irish Academy um, at the time that O'Curry was giving these lectures. And so although Sullivan's background was science, um, he set about not just editing O'Curry's lectures and getting them published, this volume the uh, on the manners and customs of the ancient irish is it's published in three volumes and the first volume is all sullivan's introduction and in order to do this he's used a scientific method he's checked up what o'curry's sources were trying to find all the sources exactly. and put the lectures into context yeah trying to create a, a bibliography trying to get a, a sort of a scientific view of early irish history and and of music history and all these yeah. other things in order to publish them but because o'curry had been giving these as lectures it meant that he didn't have extensive bibliographic notes. He didn't have, you know, a written complete translation of the works he was looking at. He was quite simply reading the original manuscripts. Not something that everybody could do. Absolutely not. still can't do. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You know, there weren't nicely printed editions. There definitely weren't nicely published translations. So he was working from his first-hand understanding of the materials. But he didn't necessarily pass on his sources in that way. Right, but he does state, or it is stated there, that he takes the story of Shannon from the Metrical to Chanaka story, does source, doesn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. When he's talking about it, he says mm. it's it's the poem that begins like this, and he gives a translation of the first four lines mm. of the first... And then this story gets retold. Mm. I'm trying to remember when I first found this story. I possibly read it in um, Charles Squire's Celtic Myths and Legends or in one of the other Celtic Twilight retellings and I certainly found O'Carrie's version of it Mm. Um, but that was really all that was available 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. The story as it was told, and as O'Curry tells it, yeah. suggests a disobedient woman who dares to go to Condler's Well in defiance of convention. Yeah, it, it was quite a shock to me when I finally found the reference in O'Curry because I had imagined that having read the poems of the Metrical Dinhenicus, which spoke of an, you know, a noble lady and the tragic loss of her. And also my version, which talks about creativity exactly. and flowing. Exactly, yeah. But, but again, the, the version that I would have first come across referred to in of course. in books was about the, the disobedient girl who um, was then punished by the angry waters of the well rising up and sweeping her away. And this is from O'Curry's telling. He, he gives a sort of what he obviously deems a synopsis of the story as it's given. And he talks about how, you know, Shinnan had all of the attainments that were appropriate to her sex. Ah, right. But that she also longed for the more solid and masculine acquirements which were available at Conla as well to the other sex only. Right. So he's really couched it in gender terms. He does say that what can be found at the well is the heights of literature and poetry and art. But uh, there is nothing in the poems that I have read to suggest that there is a gender issue at stake here. Right. We What we need to do, if we ought to open our first story, Archaeological Trench, and actually go back to the earliest form of the story, which comes from the Metricut in Shanicus. Look, there, can you briefly summarise that for us and tell the story that comes across in that? The full text and um, my attempt at translation will go on to the blog itself. But just to make clear, the metrical dinhenicus. Dinhenicus means the history of place names or the history of important places. And uh, within the Book of Leinster, among other manuscripts, there is a collection of loads of poems, in the metrical case, uh, which tell the story of uh, the history of famous places. And there are two places. about Shinnan, aren't About Shinnan, yes. There are two poems, one after the other, and they largely agree. The second one has a few stanzas at the end which mm. give other possible versions of how the Shannon got its name, um, although it also st- says that those versions are no better than the one that's just told. Right, so basically the two similar metrical Dinshanaka's versions. Yes. Shinnan is this... 
wonderful, noble woman. Yes, who is accomplished. It doesn't say anything about being accomplished for a girl. It just says she was a girl and she was greatly accomplished. Has every accomplishment. Yeah, every gift that could be imaginable. The only thing that she lacked was poetic inspiration, which in the poem is imboss. Right, so she then goes off to Con as well. Yes. Which it isn't where I put it at the source of a river. It's it, weird, isn't it? It's, it is. It's out to the west and it's under the sea. Under the sea. In okay. the domain of Conlow, which is under the waves. Right. And uh, so Shannon has to make her way there uh, in order to gaze upon the bubbles of inspiration. Yeah. It's told how the well is surrounded by the nine poets' hazels, which are said to be ilkyolach, all musical, and that uh, the these trees are wondrous because they produce the leaf, the flower and the fruit all in one instant and that as soon as the nuts are ripe they drop into the well and there they're eaten by the salmon and the salmon, while they're chewing up the nuts, the juice produces these lovely bubbles. <laughs> which are bubbles of inspiration. And it's these that Shinnan wanted to go and gaze upon. Yeah. So she wanted to look at them in order to be inspired, to, to gain this deep yeah. kind of inspiration that's termed emboss. And then there's, the water rises up, but it's not quite like the version that's... There's certainly no sense of the water being angry. That's appeared in more than one English language retelling, that the waters were angry at mm. her. But they sort of follow her back. Follow or... her back across the land until they reach the edge of the river. So the water rises, the sea rises and comes to the river. Yeah. And that's where she dies. Yeah, that she, she is then drowned finally on, on the edge right. of that river. So that's a sort of summary mm. of the story itself. Mm. But, well, what I find interesting and clear is that A, she's certainly not a disobedient woman or a rebel. Absolutely she's not. the flower of her people, accomplished and valued. And in fact, the, the poems are set as almost a, a, a mourning for the loss of this great lady, that she was someone who was so fine and so accomplished, and it's a tragedy for us. So it's like a eulogy on, yeah, on her life. exactly. Then, of course, the next thing, that she's accomplished in every way, she just needs poetic inspiration. So if she's already a poet and already accomplished and already a, a, a great lady, why is it this one thing that she needs that's so important, do you think? The very highest levels of early Irish society, which was very structured, very highly stratified. Mm. The top of that heap, pretty much, was the olive or the chief poet. That's nice, isn't it? When poets are the, Absolutely. the top of the society. Exactly. And in fact, you know, although they weren't officially the king who had, you know, the highest possible status, they were most often advisors to the king. And mm. there, there are examples in the annals that give time where an interregnum, the, it's the olive and the chief poet who mm -hmm. takes care of the land in between. They could speak if on the behalf king of the king. Available, they would speak for the king. They could speak for the king. They could speak for the two of uh, the people when they needed to negotiate with another kingdom. Mm. Um, they were ab absolutely the most honoured and in there society. is evidence to show that women could be poets, isn't there? Definitely. Although, again, the status texts would say that a, you know, Banfilid, so a, a woman poet, couldn't quite attain the same status as the Olive or the chief poet. She could still get pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. And certainly as time went on, it became a tradition, particularly that the, the laments, the queen that would be made by woman poets. Mm. We're not suggesting that the ancient Irish society was completely... Um, Egalitarian. It, it was certainly not quite what O'Curry suggests. No, and it's, <laughs> it's definitely not a case that, you know, women had to be, as Elizabeth Peters put in her novels, that a woman had to stand on a pedestal and therefore couldn't do anything. And had to remain completely still. Yes. That may be not exact, but yeah. I like the quote. Yes. Um, now, but this thing about poetic inspiration, it seems to be one stage beyond the creation of good poetry. Well, again, we have a lot of texts that speak of the various grades of poet that you could get and the indeed the training that they had to go through in order to achieve these various grades and uh, one text which is uh, published as the Mittelirische Wörthlehren by Rudolf Terneisen which is the Middle Irish verse mm -hmm. texts and uh, that gives 12 years, a course of 12 years mm. to study to reach the, the highest grade of So of which poet. was the most important type of poetry then? Well 
it, it again once you get to the the most advanced study and the most advanced qualifications you're talking about um philids poets who were also lawyers and um could do the most complicated kinds of poetry including anavan which is a, a meter of poetry that has only three syllables in each line but this particular term, imboss... Or oh, the poetic inspiration. Yeah. Some of the most advanced techniques of the poets included the imboss for Osna. Sometimes it's translated as a sort of a, a magical lore, but what it is, in essence, is a kind of inspiration that allows you to produce perfectly metrical poetry off the top of your head. Improvised poetry, yes. but still which has a perfect form. Exactly, yes. And so that is the most advanced form so of poetry. So that's what she was looking for. That's what she's looking yeah. for. You said that sometimes the word emboss is translated as magic, and certainly this type of poetry does feel magical. Within some stories it's said to you know, have magical effects. Yeah, it's a bit misleading using yeah, the word that, magic. Yeah, that um, when Gwyn has translated these two poems in the Metrical Dynhianicus, he always translates emboss as magical lore. That is misleading. It's about poetry first and foremost. The magical element is describing the poetry. When I came to look at the Irish stories, obviously not having been born here and not having been born to the Irish, let alone the early Irish, mm. um, I could only rely on English versions and translations of the story. Mm. I couldn't go directly to the earliest text myself. This seems to be a real danger at times. It is, not least because you then come across a piece which has been deeply interpreted in the way that O'Curry's telling of the Shinnan story has been so coloured by O'Curry's own thoughts and assumptions and yeah. prejudices and that makes it seem as if there's a whole different story it's a good example about. of how a story can be told for its time when you read one of these 19th century texts you are very much aware that it's of its time yeah all the victorian imperialism and yes. the importance of encountering other groups who may not be as advanced carrying the light of british culture across the world the whole missionary position yes <laughs> Although it also rather uncomfortably, a lot of the books at this time, when they're talking about, you know, groups of peoples yeah. across Europe, they keep talking about Aryan races. And of course, this is very uncomfortable in a post Hitlerian yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. When these things are prior to the 30s were not meant in the way we would understand it now. No, no. But it's still this sense of one race of people are better than another. Yes. And again, that one gender is better than another. Absolutely. And this is absolutely clear. Yeah. Everybody had their place and the British um, imperial groups mm. in Victorian times were at the top. Yeah. Although O'Curry was Irish. Within the intelligentsia, you know, the intelligentsia mm. of any society society that is officially ruled by another is going to sort of want to identify itself as much well, as possible. You know, I mean, I know other. he strongly and, and scholarly yeah. Irish, but he still seems to carry this, exactly. this they, quality. Yeah, still has that assumption. It was equally true in medieval times when a lot of the texts were you, written down. It's something that's always worth bearing in mind and I've come across this particularly in terms of the medieval texts, particularly when, when they talk about Owen, Ockham. Mm. Um, it's clear that they really don't understand the, the linguistic basis of Ockham, which, of course, mm. they're writing about something that was a thousand years prior. And so they're trying to make sense of it in their own time. Well, they're also trying to make sense of the stories in terms of a lot of them were put together by monks or yeah. clerical people mm. who were, after all, able to... had time to write as much as anything exactly, else. Yeah. And uh, therefore, they're concerned with the genealogies yes. and trying to fit them into biblical and uh, classical exactly. genealogies. Yes. So everything has to be made to fit. Yeah, and also the, there was this general trend towards uh, trying to make mythology a kind of ancient history, to make things that were obscure to them already within the Irish culture, be it the poetry, be it the characters who are talked about in the stories of mm. the Tua de Danon, trying to make sense of it according to their own culture. After all, we're always trying to make meaning for our own time. Yeah. That's uh, what we're all doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what you're doing. Exactly. I mean, it's been true even in modern times. I mean, in, take, for example, in the last 20 years, 
years, um, there's been this understandable desire mm. to touch the divine feminine. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. It's been really needed. Yes. But at the same time, it's led to a, almost like an idealised idea of matriarchal or matrifocal societies, yes. which I'd love to say existed, but there's probably little Fel- real evidence. evidence. Yes, I couldn't say little enough elephants, but I'm not <laughs> sure where they came from. And after all, my version of the story wants to encourage, you know, I'm seeing it in terms of creativity and uh, intuition. Yeah. So it's no different, although exactly. I hope it has a little more what, contact with the Dinshanagas. Well, what we're doing here is we're, we're recreating the materials for the current time and from our point of view as middle-aged women who live in Ireland. You're not middle-aged. Ah, come on now. <laughs> always been old, always been old. This in attitude, in attitude. Look on the but, <laughs> But again, um, you know, I have a, definitely have a feminist background. I definitely yeah. have um, an atheist approach to these things. Yeah. But hopefully, in the way that we're working, we are laying out our methodology clearly and hopefully as well giving our listeners access to the yeah. sources so they can make up their own minds. Well, maybe we ought to stop looking at the lovely bubbles and go back <laughs> to the text. Yeah. We found out more about the character of Shinnan, but what is she doing in these poems? If she isn't going to a well which rises up in anger, then she's going to look for a well mm. that's at the bottom of the sea. Now, this is a bit odd. Finding a well at the bottom of the sea, it's a paradox. It is. It is paradoxical. And there's a lot else that is paradoxical. Oh, it's full of paradoxes. Yeah. Look, just look at some of the paradoxes. Yep, you've got uh, a well at the bottom of the sea. Paradox. The source of the river is also the destination Mm -hmm. paradox the wonderful hazel trees they bud and flower and fruit at the same time Mm -hmm. which i really should have put in my story but it sort of didn't work so yeah it's a paradox (laughs) anyway Mm. and then you've got these salmon living underwater taking in the nuts that fall from these trees underwater Mm. but they're also going to the source of the river Mm paradox Mm. um oh there's one more she goes to the well of generous women yes this is something that i didn't uh, say in the earlier summary of the poem but that the well uh, is also described as lindmanar failure which is the well of the generous woman so it's conless well it's also the well of generous woman yeah and that's its name at the beginning of the story yes but there's an addendum at the end to say that it's called lindmanar failure because shinnan went there that she's the generous woman who it's named for it's kind of circular reasoning exactly another paradox yeah. Now, you could explain all these paradoxes as, as being that the, the place is a place that is no place, and a time that is no time. In fact, that it's another world place, yes. that it's in the land of promise. You know, a lot of these other world places are set beneath the waves. Or over the sea. Or over yeah. the sea, or on an island in yeah. a lake in the middle of a river could there be another reading on this in in terms of the poetic inspiration well in terms of the journey that she has to make she wants to reach the absolutely the pinnacle of poetic art and so she has to find an impossible place and this is not uncommon in mythology and in folklore and in songs and so on, that in order to get a great gift, yeah. you have to do what you seems impossible. impossible place. There's also a reference now, it turns up in several stories, but I know it's associated with the story of Fionn and the Salmon of Wisdom, which yes. describes that the place where poetry is found is between the water and the dry land. Yes. It's in the place between, that exactly. place that's almost impossible to find, often except by accident. It's neither one thing nor the other. Shinnan, in order to reach that goal and that real gift of true poetry, she has to pass through paradox to get there and she has to accept that they are paradoxical in order to get that poetry. such a familiar theme in Mm. folk tales and songs. I'm afraid, oh, just the well-known song of um, uh, Scarborough Fair, you know, Rosemary and Time and all that stuff. But I mean, part of the verses of that, I I can't recall them in detail, but uh, tell her to find me an acre of land Mm. between the water and the dry land. There's something about a shirt, yeah. Yeah, and (laughs) tell her to dry it on yonder dry thorn. Mm. This constant do the impossible yes 
Yeah. You know, if you can do the impossible, then you will have achieved the quest. There's the Welsh story of Talith Lynn with the, the physicians of Talith Lynn and the way the young man achieves his bride in the first place, the lady who comes out of the, the water, the fairy woman. And uh, she won't come to him until he comes He comes to her, neither shod or unshod, neither dressed nor undressed, yeah. neither on foot or on, on horseback. horseback. Yeah. I think yeah. he comes to her. One he, shoe on, one shoe off. He's dressed in a net, yeah. a fishing net. And he's on the back of a goat or something oh, like that. That belongs to the other story right, of okay, Bronwyn. yeah. But... Um, and how do you kill a god? Yes. You know, that's the story yeah. of flu. That's another yeah. story. But there's so many stories yes. full of paradox. Yeah. What about the wonderful story of Tamlin with the three paths? Yes. You know, there's the broad, broad path. That is the path to hell, though some do call it the path to heaven. Yeah. Do you see that narrow, narrow path? You know, and that is the path to righteousness, though after it, but few inquire. And do you see that bonny, bonny path? That is the path to fair elf land where yes. you and I this night must go. Yeah. Uh, you know, Again, it's, that's the in-between. the in-between. Yeah. The way into that other world, the way into that inspired place mm. must lie between the two opposites. Yes. In fact, you get it in Harry Potter as well. You get having to go to platform nine and three quarters. Yeah, it's... In order to get the train that brings you off to the wizard school. Yes, it's going through Narnia and through the wardrobe, yeah, through yeah. the impossible. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. I always love that paradox. Yes. The way to magic is through paradox. Yes, yes. And the way to poetry is through paradox. Absolutely. Oh, we're going on too much. <laughs> Something else that comes up is the wells. Earlier on, I mentioned there were the two Bowen poems. Yes, that, that very often you find that the, the story of Shinnan, people will say, oh, it's the same as the story of Bowen, the, the origin of the river Boyne. Well, give us an outline of the Bowen stories. Yeah, again, within the Dinchenicus, there are two poems. Uh, now, these don't agree as closely as the two Shinnan poems agree with one another. But in brief, um, in both poems, Bowen is said to be the wife of Nechten, who is supposed to be a powerful man mm -hmm. of the two a day. In the first poem there is this well um which is dangerous and it's so evil that if you look at it your eyes will explode <laughs> is this another sort of lovely bubble yeah boom, 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 <laughs> splat yeah maybe where we get this mistranslation as the uh, red in the well or yeah, the purple yeah, in yeah. the well this isn't the lovely bubbles of inspiration this no. is the exploding eyes yes maybe. so in in this first poem the the well is dangerous and it's evil and that's why people aren't allowed near it yeah. But Bowen, who is very powerful, she decides to go and test the strengths of the evil in this well. So obviously she reckons that she can deal with it. And so she walks, I think, three times around it. Yeah. The strength in the well is too much for her. It and rises up in anger against her. Yeah. Well, it's it's more that it's already evil and dangerous. <laughs> And so these three waves come and they injure her in yeah, the yeah, eye yeah. and in the hand and in the foot. That's interesting. Yes, it is very interesting. Yeah, we'll come back to that we will. later on. And, and so then she tries to escape, basically, the, these ferocious waves and they carry her all the way to the sea. So that's the, the way it stands in the first poem. Now, in the mm -hmm. second poem, it brings in the story of uh, Bowen and the doctor meeting in secret mm -hmm. and having a liaison uh, behind Bowen's husband's back. They send him away uh, for nine months but make him think it's a day so that the the child dying us oh, can he's be the born. One, the, he's young is the son who yes. was conceived but and born, born in, in one, one night exactly. or one day. Yes. Yeah. So they bring in that story except again in the prose version Bowen's husband, husband is called Elkvar in this it's Nechten but anyway that after the whole you know nine months conceiving and, and birthing of Oingus is completely that Bowen is ashamed of herself. Then she suddenly gets second thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that suddenly she, she's ashamed. Oh, what have I done? And so she has to go to this well in order to essentially wash away her guilt or her supposed sin. Um, but that Nechton is already suspicious of her. And so he has set his three cupbearers to spy, basically. cupbearers well. have magic. We'll Absolutely. have to come back to that. This, it, it's yes. not, doesn't mean they just carry his cup. No, it's not, it's not a barmaid. No. Uh, this is something a bit more involved, slightly mysterious. But anyway, that they, the, these three uh, cupbearers are keeping an eye out pardon the pun, for Bowen coming to the well. And kind of they have control over the water. So they cause these three waves to, to rise up and injure Bowen Which as is a where punishment. Got, in a way, the magicians who kept it contained and static, yes. kept it secret, some wouldn't let anybody else. Yeah, it seems to be because 
you know, earlier scholars went, oh, look, there's Shinnan, which is a female figure who goes to a well and causes a river. And here's Bowen, who's also a female figure who goes to a well and causes a river. Mm. Therefore, the story's the same. The two stories have got conflated. They have, definitely. Yeah, but but yeah. they are so different in character. They are. What's interesting, something you didn't mention, in, in the, one of the Bowen poems, it's like every river that anybody yes. knew about is mentioned, from the uh, Tigris to the River Jordan. Jordan, they're all mentioned. There are all yes. the names of this river. Yeah, that's known as the 15 names of the Boyne, which yeah. comes as a sort of introductory piece to the first Boyne. In story. fact, etymologically speaking, mm. um, there are several European river names that can be connected with Shinnan, yes. um, two of them being the Seven and the Sen. It's yes. been suggested that it might have been a, a river name that it was common across, common across Europe. Europe yeah. um, Although it's interesting that within, if you like, the Irish poetic tradition, that those rivers are actually equated with the Boyne and not the Shannon. There are other stories which are similar um, to uh, you know, the story of a woman going to a well. Yeah. It's quite common about a lot of wells, although they tend to be closer to the Bowen story than, in fact, the Shannon story. Yeah. For instance, there's a well not far from where we are now, called, in a place called Fina, which is not really more than a few miles down mm. the road, and that has a very old story about a well. And in this case, the well was kept with a lid on to mm. make sure it stayed as a well until some woman dares to go near the well and takes the lid off, at which the waters rise up and cover the land until some quick-thinking male cuts her legs off or her feet off. Yes. And that stops the flow of the water. Literally stops it running. Stops it running, yes. yeah. yeah. And not a particularly pleasant story, but no. it's more typical of the type of stories you find. It is. There's, there's a real persistence about uh, wells being associated with female figures. And very often in, you know, the birth of a lake or river will be about, you know, a, a female figure interacting with the well. But it, it seems to me that as time goes on, that the association of, of the woman with the well becomes a bit more negative and that it's more like, you know, that thing of having to punish or contain or take control of the woman. And could take control of the well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that that, that to it's me feels like... the fertility of the land mm. is, being, is something that must be kept carefully controlled, yeah, carefully and contained and measured, yeah. and is not to be left to women. God, no. You might share it. <laughs> dear, we're giving away our feminist viewpoints again. Yes. <laughs> there is a story in the Welsh, it's a, it's a romance story, it's quite a late story called The Lady of the Fountain, and I, I particularly like this one because it tells how there was once a beautiful land rich and fertile. In this land there were the wells, and the yes. women of the wells would freely give of the water to everyone who passed, handing the water out in these wonderful golden cups, yeah. until one day some knights came along and they decided that they rather liked these golden vessels and they stole them from the women and they raped the women and the land became a total wasteland and it said that until the voices of the wells were heard again in the land the land would remain a wasteland yes. I thought it was a good story it is, yeah. and it's maybe why I chose to interpret the Shinnan story as I did you see for me I think the well is about the source of creativity that can be shared by all if it's allowed to flow yeah. and allowed to go where it will. That it doesn't mean that scholarship isn't part of it, mm. but it's good to have fun with it as well. Yes. And possibly why a lot of my life has been de dedicated to community art and creative writing with children and storytelling. It's yeah. probably why I do what I do. And it, a lot of it was based on the story of Shin. On that story, yes. Uh, that was my personal touchstone. Mm. So if that's personal bias, so be it. Exactly. We'll just have to deal with that. <laughs> Back to the text, let's go and dig up some more. Yes. I'm interested in why the water then rises up. What causes this rise up? It's not really specified within the poems of Shinnan from the metrical Dinhenicus. It does seem that by her going there, that the water rises and that it follows her back to the edge of the river, which mm. I take to be the edge of the river Shannon. So she's drawing the water back over. Mm, so there's no anger part. attached to this. No, there's no mention no of blame. No, no mention of anger or blame. Although it's said that the Shannon is then drowned at the end of this process. It is, yeah. Isn't there some mention of she went there to get what she needed for her new life? Yeah, at, at, at sort of early when she decides that she's going to go to the well, it said that it would be a new activity for her new life. That she is, as it were, that, that she dies to her old life mm. and is born to a new life. Again, the introduction of the first poem, the first stanza says, yeah. this is the way that although Shannon died, her name became immortal. 
Yeah, and it's the ending of something causes the beginning. Yeah. I certainly no sense that the well is dangerous or under control of anybody else. No, it's it's just mysterious and you have to sort of look in the unexpected places in order to get there. And no bursting eyes. No, definitely no exploding eyes. <laughs> I like this. I wonder what on earth causes it. The well made their eyes burst. Okay, does Shannon succeed or fail? Mm. I mean, in the Bowen's, Bowen story, she clearly fails. Bowen fails in, in either telling. Again, in the first telling... She's simply not strong enough to withstand, you know, the dangerous water of of the well. In and in the second telling, it's it's much more judgmental. You know, it's that she has committed a crime or a sin, and that she is deliberately punished for that, mm. and that the water is the means of this punishment. Yeah. So in either case, you know, Bowen doesn't succeed in what she sets out to There's do. There's certainly the the Shillin story is significantly different. It is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as far as I can see, she as you saying, she draws the water of the inspired pool back to the river mm. where she's drowned, or yeah. maybe the water of the well under the sea follows her until it reaches the river, and there mm. it becomes too great and and destroys her. Mm. Or in, in, if you interpret it metaphorically as uh, Shinnan seeking to become the best poet that she can be, that she draws this source of inspiration back with her and uh, continues to flow with it or to follow it or it to follow her until the day she dies. Right, so she becomes a poet, inspired poet for the rest of her life. Yes. Until she dies and is mourned. Yeah, and af- uh, after which, although she dies, her art, her poetry yeah. will live on forever. So either way, she's transfigured by the experience. Definitely, definitely. You know, it comes across as a powerful invocation of the poet's quest. Yes. And how much her quest is honoured. Yeah, and that it's difficult and that although this very valued and beloved figure is lost to us that she has left something behind for us and that poetry will live on yeah and you know the the artist's quest you know for immortality if you like it is about the artist's quest for immortality yeah 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 it's interesting and creativity so I wasn't far off no no (laughs) no I've got one more thought and Mm. this is pure speculation Mm -hmm. or you could call it poetic inspiration (laughs) or just a storyteller's rambling Mm. Um, it was just one idea that's come to me from allowing the imagery to well up you know it seems to me that the story is backwards Mm. instead of the river flowing to the sea the sea flows to the river so you get this sort of image of a great wave rising up and flowing over the land until mm-hmm. it reached the river. Now, doesn't that sound a bit like a tsunami? Might do. <laughs> well, storms off the west of Ireland can be wild, but if you were to search for a, a huge tsunami that swept over Ireland or the west of Ireland, as far as I know, you might have to go back over 8,000 years. Now, there was, for example, the Agassiz Lake in northern Canada. I believe that was the size of California. Created by the first melting of the ice after the last ice age. Now, I believe that had been kept contained and static by a dam of ice. Yes. And that that melted and caused such a tsunami that it swept across the Atlantic, turned Ireland into an island, sort of, except it's for the land bridge. Yes, yeah, up in the northeast. Yeah. And uh, it's also supposed to have created the Black Sea. Yeah, which was a, a highly populated area at that mm. time. And uh, this certainly would have changed the, the changed landscape. Changed landscape considerably. Absolutely. Maybe it even gave rise to some of the inundation stories that yes. uh, proliferate among... All over Europe and West Asia. And it struck me that that the Mesolithic people living between the sea and the dry land would have been pushed into a new world. They tended to live on the shoreline because that was the easiest and richest place to live. It Mm. gave them the space and also gave them the the diet that they Mm. needed and room to move because the interiors were mostly... Forested. forested. You can almost create a sort of scenario that was applicable to the hunter-gatherers of the time as they were forced inland maybe towards to living on the shores of the rivers. Mm. But of course it's pure speculation when it comes to, you know, could a memory be passed on over of the time when the end of the world became the beginning. The it's beginning of the new world. It's well, just speculation when it comes to Shinnan, of course. It might not be. Uh, there is another... 
Metricle Dinhianica's poem that mentions Shinnan. The name of the place it's talking about is Oth Leag Find, which means the Ford of Film's Stone. Now, this is down at Lanesborough. That's Lanesborough. Again, yeah. not too far from here. Not near, too near. far away. It's where the Shannon uh, enters Loch Ree, the northern edge mm. of, of Loch Ree. And uh, the story is that, as usual, when you're talking about Finn, there was a great battle and lots of people were slain and all the rest of it. But during this battle, the Shinnan comes up and she gives Fionn a three-sided stone which has a golden chain attached to it, mm-hmm. which is a curious kind of image. It is, actually. Yeah, and uh, that Fionn uses this stone, it, it's a bit unclear to me about exactly how he uses it, whether it's Some a sort weapon. Of weapon or yeah. something. It talks about putting it on the neck or on the shoulders of Gurugul. Um, and then Fionn make, taking an oath by it that uh, if he ever uses anything but a spear, a sword or a brand, that his sight should touch the ground, so he should die if he yeah, used yeah, yeah. anything other than those. And then he, he chucks the stone away. Into the river? Into the river, into the pool there, so that it the falls into the ford. Yeah. And then it's said that the river casts it up onto the shore and then it will be found by this girl. And her, her name is Bay Thinna which means the Lady of the Wave, mm-hmm. and that she will find a stone, she'll put her foot through a loop of the golden chain, and then seven days after that, it will be Judgment Day. So, it's, the it's, end so of the world. It's, in other words, we've got, it's odd, you've got Shinnan here, somehow connected with the end of the world. Yes, and, and with someone called the Lady of the Wave. Yeah. You could say that we might have recovered one of Irish mythology's oldest creation stories. Yes. If you take it as this cataclysmic event, which would have changed and altered the landscape of Ireland and the way that the people living here had to story, find a living. Though, yeah. And those stories are never about the creation of people, but always about the shaping of the land. Yeah, it, it sometimes has been said that whatever our creation myths are, they've been lost. I think it's just that they are of a different kind, that most cultures, they have a creation story whereby an all-powerful being or a very powerful being. A creator of some kind. Yeah, creates the first people, often out of clay, you know, um, but that, and however it happens, the first people are created by this being. We don't have that in Ireland. There's absolutely no stories whatsoever which describes a creator creating the people. Mm. They they just appear from not being or from sleep, and they're not regarded as the people until they can make things. Exactly. Hence the Tuatha Dé Danann are the people of Danu and the root of Danu's name is craft. So they're the people of craft. Yeah, it's all so about making. So what makes you human is that you make things. Yes. So And rather than having any story about humans or people being created, what we have are people who are shaping the land and the landscape. That's where the creation comes in. Creation's all about the shaping of the land. Yeah, so it's about people applying that craft. And the creation itself mm. of Ireland yes. is a kind of powerful shaping, isn't it? This is how Ireland became an island, was through this massive tsunami... Yeah. We we know from, you know, world mythology that cataclysmic events do get remembered in story form. Again, the, the inundation, which could well be the same tsunami, yeah, yeah. is remembered throughout. Now, we can't prove this either way, but it makes a good story, doesn't it? It is a good story. And whatever, however you take it, whether you see Shinnan as uh, this example of poetic inspiration and the great poet, creation of the word and creativity, mm. or whether you see her as a memory of the, the first great shape of Ireland... Mm. It's a powerful story. Thank you for listening to Agalaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolda of Bullocorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists.com 